Hello, I'm David Moskrow. Welcome to Open to Debate. In January, former New Democratic Party leader Ed Broadbent died at the age of 87. Outpourings of grief, respect, and gratitude followed throughout the country, culminating in a state funeral in Ottawa. Broadbent's legacy is the product of decades of tireless work as an elected representative and as an ambassador for the left at home and abroad. His commitment to justice and equality is paralleled by few in Canada, and this episode is dedicated to understanding and celebrating his service to this country and to left movements worldwide. My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Luke Savage, columnist, co-host of the podcast Michael and Us, and author with Ed Broadbent and others of Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality. Let's start by taking a moment to appreciate the outpouring of love, appreciation, and respect that followed Ed Broadbent's death. What does it say to you, and, and what does it say about his legacy, that we saw the reaction that we did, and, and across the political spectrum, no less? Yeah, I mean, it really was across the political spectrum. If you could find me one other figure who, uh, you know, after passing away, um, would elicit condolences from Brian Mulroney and the Communist Party of Cuba, um, I've, I've yet to, uh, <laughs> I've yet, I've yet to meet them. Um, so, you know, I, I think all of it is just, you know, it's a reflection of the, uh, I mean, immense uh, public respect there was for Ed, um, and the, just the, the very special kind of figure um, that he was. I mean, uh, you know, Frances Abel, my colleague, um, had a wonderful turn of phrase in her remarks at um, Ed's state funeral about how Canada was Ed's village. And the experience she described um, was is, was very much the one I had. Anytime uh, I was out in public with Ed, regardless of the city, this wasn't just Ottawa, this was Toronto, Vancouver, you know, there were people that had, uh, you know, pe- people recognized him everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, he told me a story once um, where him and uh, his uh, his wife, Ellen Meeksons Wood, were at Young and Bloor in Toronto. And um, at every all four corners, uh, they had to stop because somebody came over to, uh, you know, say hello. Everyone called him Ed. Everyone had a story or, or a memory. Um, you know, he was on for a first name basis with, um, you know, the people at his local pizza joint um, mm-hmm. that he liked at uh, the Portuguese restaurant uh, where my partner and I had uh, dinner with him and Francis uh, last fall. Um that's the kind of uh, person that he was. And I think, uh, you know, people, you know, politicians are often, I mean, particularly uh, 35 years or so after they've been on, you know, in front bench politics, you know, they're often very kind of uh, removed figures, you know, and when, when they're in politics, they're removed because there's, they, you know, they're, they're sort of almost these, you know, to use a kind of $10 word, they're almost these kind of Jupiterian figures, mm-hmm. you know, people, people's, relationship with them is mediated uh, by, you know, through mass media, through all of this, you know, political technology. And, um, you know, and Ed was actually one of, you know, a member of the first generation of politicians who really had to navigate, um, you know, TV becoming the way people were experiencing elections. And in spite of all that, um, you know, he was able to form these, you know, very close bonds with people. He was able to elicit tremendous respect from people who never voted for him. Um, and, uh, I think that, uh, speaks to the, the rare and special kind of figure that he was. He would have been involved in some of the earlier 
televised debates, right? Was, I mean, it was the first one, 68 or something like that. He would have been fairly early on in that process. The, the first one was 1968, although um, I happen to know that the viewing figures for that were uh, exceptionally poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't a debate for 72. There wasn't one for 74. So 79, uh, which was Ed's first uh, federal election as leader of the NDP, I think that was the first one that got uh, you know significant attention. And actually, there's a very good National Film Board documentary. People can watch it for free right now uh, called History on the Run that is all about um, TV coverage uh, of the 1979 federal election. And you get various pundits um, kind of meditating on their own role and their own kind of agency in this new uh, you know media environment where uh, TV is everything. And they think, well, I, I, I like to think I'm just describing you know, what it's like uh, when Ed Broadbent gives a speech or when Pierre Trudeau arrives at Maple Leaf Gardens. But also I know I'm shaping, <laughs> shaping, I'm creating a narrative as well. Um, so, uh, you know, <laughs> so yeah, mass media is a big part of Ed's uh, career, but, um, you know, the, the kind of environment he was navigating, you can, uh, you can see for yourself in that, uh, in that documentary. Yeah. I want to, I want to come back to, to, a question that spirit in a couple of minutes, but first I want to talk a little bit about your book, along with the Dead Center, which which is a book I recommend. So you co-authored this wonderful book, Seeking Social Democracy, about Ed, his life, his time, his politics. It's a great mix of biography, history, a little bit of political theory, conversation. It's conversations interspersed with essays by Ed. It is readable. It is accessible, but erudite. It's a fantastic book. Uh, what did you learn about him, his politics, as an approach to leadership throughout this process? Because it seemed like the process of putting it together was an intimate affair uh, that 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 went beyond anything that a reader is going to be able to pick up in the pages. Yeah, I mean, very much so. Um, I mean, the, the the challenge, and I mean, thanks for the kind words about uh, the book. You, it'll you know, be no surprise to you that uh, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a fascinating and and unique kind of collaboration. I mean, there were three of us involved, uh, you know, besides Ed himself, and um, you know, he really wasn't the kind of person who wanted ever to write a traditional political autobiography. He was not interested in that sort of book, a sort of blow by blow of events. Um, you know, he uh, he 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 was fundamentally a person of ideas, but he was also a politician, so mm-hmm. he had other concerns. Yeah, and he was. He wasn't just observing events and interpreting them uh, for other people. He was playing an active role in them, and he was intervening in political reality to try to affect a particular kind of um, of change. Um, and so, you know, figuring out exactly uh, how such and such a type of book is going to proceed, we began, and you know, this was all happening during the pandemic. So, uh, you know. This was this was uh, mostly over Zoom. Um, where we began is simply with the three of us picking Ed's brain. Sometimes, well, initially the conversations would often be somewhat unstructured. You know, just kind of feeling out of the territory. Um, I think over time they became a lot more structured as a sort of um, well, as a as a general uh, you know structure and narrative arc, or as various narrative arcs. Um, that the book was going to follow kind of revealed themselves to us. Um, and yeah, it really was, you know, intimate is the word you, you know, you, um, yeah, that's how you described it. And you're, you're absolutely right. Um, 
and you know uh, something else about Ed, which you know uh, yielded really tremendous results and was, I think, very special for 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 me and for Francis and Jonathan as well, is that you know he has this huge trove of papers, and you know their speeches, their uh, but also academic articles, his PhD thesis on John Stuart Mill, which was <laughs> supervised by C.B. McPherson. Um, you know, his book, The Liberal Ripoff, uh, which was published in 1970, no one's ever heard of it, but I, I discovered it circa 2010 or something like that. And it, it set my mind on fire. Mm -hmm. it was, I'd never, I'd never read anything like it. Um, and so, you know, Ed had all of this stuff, um, along with, uh, you know, the more banal, but not always, um, uninteresting stuff that want to cruise over decades in politics, you know, itineraries and interviews and things like that. And, uh, you know, because uh, memory is is difficult when you have so much of it, when you've been in public life for decades, this material was tremendously helpful, uh, not only for us in uh, understanding, uh, you know, kind of where Ed was coming from on on things um, or just, you know, being reminded of, of history. Uh, but it was it was really useful for him, too, because you know, a, a speech would emerge from Library and Archives Canada that he'd given on tax policy. Uh, you know, in response to the, there was a big white paper, I believe in 1969, that the Trudeau government commissioned on, on tax policy. And, um, you know, and this is only one example, but, uh, you know, get the speech out of Library and Archives Canada, send it to Ed, and then, you know, an hour later he calls you and it's all, like, it's all come back to him. <laughs> he, he's back, you know, he's, he's back uh, immersed in, you know, these... Uh, you know, pretty arcane, but, uh, you know, not uninteresting debates about tax policy and being Ed, he's not just responding um, in a speech like that to, you know, the, 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 the specifics of the debate. He's also trying to answer bigger questions. Mm -hmm. How should socialists, how should we in the NDP orient ourselves towards taxation in general? What are what are our underlying principles for, you know, a just system of taxation? Um, and so that's, I mean, that's just one example. And there were so many others like it. I'll give one more example because that's a kind of a policy oriented one. Um, but one of my favorite finds was a, I mean, it's basically a, a scrawl. It's a series of handwritten notes. Like this is how they are, uh, this is how they exist at Library and Archives Canada. Um, and, uh, this is a text, uh, undated though. I, I'm uh, assuming I only can only assume it's from the early seventies. Um, and it was called uh, Teaching and Practicing Socialism. Um, and I mean, it's probably about five or six hundred words long. But uh, in it, uh, you know, Ed is meditating on, you know, he's thinking through these issues of, you know, I'm a socialist politician. I have a particular ideological perspective. There's certain things that I want to change about the status quo. Um, but also, I have to persuade people. Mm -hmm. So how do I preserve my own ideological point of view while also respecting, and that's the word that Ed liked to use again and again, and it appears, uh, you know, it's part of the, the title of the second chapter of the book, um, re you know, respecting, uh, you know, other people, respecting the public uh, that I am, you know, trying to persuade. Um, and so, you know, always there, were, you know, we were finding these things where Ed is thinking through big questions of public policy and also political practice. And, uh, the, the, the texts themselves were fascinating, but um, sending them to him and, and, and you know, uh, seeing him immediately kind of, uh, you know, carried back into the past uh, was, uh, I mean, very special in a way that I actually struggled to articulate.
You mentioned the word socialist two or three times there, which is uh, more often than I think it's been um, uttered by the New Democratic Party in, in the last several years. And so I want to pick up on on something there. Uh, on Ed's passing, I noticed that a lot of people said the equivalent of they don't make leftists like him anymore. And I was one of them. I'm not sure if anyone, if everyone meant the same thing with those words, but for what I was referring to was his outright socialism, his deeply committed socialism, his internationalism, his commitment to industrial policy uh, and democracy, his erudition, but his capacity to also reach working class people where they were, not to dismiss their problems as uh, incidental to the bigger intellectual project of socialism. Um, so I'm curious what your assessment is of the take that they don't make social, or they don't, they don't make politicians like Ed anymore. Well, first I should say something just on, on the question of kind of socialism versus social democracy, which, you know, are kind of, they're used interchangeably throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's, that's because Ed always used them interchangeably. If you go back to, uh, his 1970 book, The Liberal Ripoff, you know, there's a sentence early in that where he says, you know, we have to begin by dispensing with the moral hogwash called capitalism. And <laughs> throughout the book, he also refers to, you know, social democracy. Yeah. So, you know, his own um, his own understanding of those terms is that they were interchangeable. Um, and, you know, they are uh, just more broadly, you know, they're they're terms that have a lot of you know, f pretty fluid historical baggage atta attached mm -hmm. to them. I mean, Rosa Luxemburg called herself a social democrat, right? So did uh, Tony Blair. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's co complicated, right? Um, although I will just I will just note that in Ed's uh, the last national radio interview Ed ever did, um, which was with Matt Galloway for the current last fall, uh, Galloway asked him. I think I hope it's not. I'm not being unfair to Matt Galloway. I think expecting a certain answer. Um, do you still consider yourself a socialist? And added, given these very detailed responses to everything else, just said yes, very bluntly. Mm -hmm. And and they moved uh, they moved on. I mean, to your question, they don't make them like they used to. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's true in a couple of senses. I mean, it's true, I think, personally of Ed, in, just in the sense that he, he really was a, a very rare kind of figure. Um, there are not a lot of uh, people who are as cerebral and intellectual as he was, who uh, also make such effective politicians. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in, in Canadian history, uh, I mean, Pierre Trudeau is an example of a successful you know, uh, politician who was also in an intellectual. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I struggle to think of a few more. There's yeah. probably a few names I'm sort forgetting. Sort of Stefan Dion. Any <laughs> yeah, how but, you score uh, that one? Yeah, I, uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm not sure he, we can consider him successful. No. <laughs> so I think like a lot of intellectuals, I mean, I'm actually glad you brought him up because like a lot of intellectuals, I feel like he was a little bit shackled by his intellectual mm -hmm. side, whereas I think Ed was able to, um, you know, actually use it. it. I think it made him more effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my view of it. But I think it's also true because, you know, in the 1980s, I mean, I think that's sort of, that's kind of the the last stand, if you want, of a of a type of uh, you know Canadian uh, social democracy, democratic socialism that uh, really is trying to advance an alternative view of the economy, right? So there's the things that many people would now associate with social democracy. You know, social democrats believe in a strong welfare state. You know, they want to expand it. Um, they you know they believe in public pension programs, public health care, things like that. All very important things. But, you know, Ed, uh, 
you know, Ed says in a very interesting discussion in the book um, that, you know, he wanted to talk about an industrial strategy um, in the 1980s. Uh, he wanted the NDP to present um, just, you know, a, an alternative way of thinking about, um, you know, the actual management and running and structure of the economy. And, you know, he says in the book, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, campaign advisors basically said, this is crazy. No one understands it. No one knows what it means. Um, and I, and if you watch the 1979 uh, federal election debate, which you can, it's on YouTube, um, along with all the others that participated in, uh, he mentions the industrial strategy in his opening statement. Um, and he said, uh, you know, he told he told us it was very important to do that because he said, I mean, I think effectively he's, he was saying, I, you know, I don't care if it's sort of difficult to explain. It's, it's our job. It's we have an obligation to present an alternative view of the economy, because if we don't do that, um, we're not fulfilling our function as a social democratic party. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, after the 1980s, uh, when the welfare state is under kind of increasing assault, you know, in, all over the world, but in, in Canada, we get the kind of lacerating Gretchen Martin budget of, I believe, 1995 is when yeah. it came in, um, that sort of guts many of the big national programs that, you know, came in after the Second World War. The NDP, uh, you know, for reasons that could be interrogated and debated, I think it's fair to say uh, kind of assumes a more defensive role. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Alexa McDonough, when she was NDP leader, um, you know, she did a lot to uh, oppose the cuts that were being made by uh, the liberals to uh, EI, which was of particular concern to people on the East Coast. So there was, for various reasons, this kind of, uh, you know, shift away from or, 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 or a loss of, of um, you know, a party like the NDP, I think, really presenting uh, an alternative view of how the economy uh, should be run. You know, uh, Ed, Ed loved to use a phrase, I think he used it in at least one campaign, if not two, about um, how the, the message he was offering to Canadians was that we need to take control of our economic destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's just, you don't hear uh, politicians talking like that uh, anymore uh, because there are certain aspects of uh, the economy, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the role of the state in it, um, how we should think and we, you know, how we should think about fiscal policy, how we should think about economic policy. Uh, cert certain things about that are just presumed now where mm -hmm. people assume that they are so kind of axiomatic, uh, you know, that they are beyond uh, question. And so, you know, I think Ed was really really kind of came in at the tail end of, uh, you know, social democracy having this sort of uh, alternative view and being very determined to offer it to people. And I think that was very important for him uh, to do. Yeah, I think that's an important point because it strikes me that after him, the idea that there were, uh, there, there could be a world in which uh, an entirely different economic order was established sort of evaporated, or at least the left seemed to back away from it. And, and now today, we're left sort of tinkering around the edges of this or that problem, yeah. fighting mostly a rear guard action for, for the most part. I, I'm curious, I know that there's lots of, of reasons for that domestically, internationally, historically. I'm curious, bringing you back to Ed, how important you think his origins were to his politics, being born in Oshawa in the 1930s, growing up in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, and entering politics in, in the 60s. Um, do, you, do you think the contingency of, of his birthplace and time played a, a, a big role in, in who he was and in, in what his politics were? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, so for people who don't know, Ed was born in 1936 in Oshawa, um, which, you know, I think he was born a year or, or uh, just a little over a year before uh, a really significant strike uh, in Oshawa in 1937, which, uh, you know, was one of the formative events in the uh, creation of industrial unionism, not only in Canada, but in uh, North America. And Ed actually had family members who participated in this strike, like his uncle Aubrey. Um, his family had uh, a deep lineage. You know, he, as he points out in the book, if you added up the uh, accumulated years that uh, various men in the Broadbent family had worked at General Motors, you know, it was it was hundreds of years, right? <laughs> so being born amid this climate of, of labor militancy during the Great Depression, um, and then growing up uh, in the world that that helped create, which was a world of more broadly shared prosperity. Uh, you know, uh, it was a, a it was a time when, as Ed says, you know, um, working class families in Oshawa, we all had a car that had been made at GM in our driveway, and we understood that that wasn't that car wasn't there um, because of you know the beneficence of the bosses at GM. It was there because uh, we we we'd fought and we'd. We'd fought and we'd struggled, and you know we'd we'd made gains um, that allowed us to live lives of greater uh, dignity and comfort. So I think all all of that was very important. Um, you know, he he liked to refer to the psychological foundation for optimism that growing up in this environment, um, you know, uh, afforded him. Um, and then you know, going to university, uh, you know, so he he goes to university in the 1950s. Um, you know, he goes to U of T, which at the time I think. The worlds of Oshawa and the and U of T were uh, more distant, perhaps, than they are now. I mean, of course, exactly the same distance in a literal sense. But you know, the way Ed talks about coming to uh, U of T, um, <laughs> frankly, it's a little bit uh, like I what I experienced uh, sixty years later. Um, you know, uh, I'd gr I grew up in rural Ontario, so kind of suddenly being thrown into the environment of U of T, living in downtown Toronto. I mean, I found downtown Toronto extremely intimidating when I was growing up. I don't know how much Ed visited it when he was growing up, but I imagine that, uh, you know, he felt the same uh, way. But he seems to have taken to it very, very quickly. Uh, initially, he, you know, I think was more aligned with uh, what you might call a, a Fabian socialist tradition, which was kind of um, more of, I, I guess, a moderate and incrementalist one. But I think his studies uh, made him more radical, and his studies really were very important to everything that came after them. But there were really two uh, formative intellectual influences uh, for Ed, quite different ones. One, uh, you know, quite uh, unlikely ones, I think, or at least uh, the second one was pretty unlikely. Uh, the first was C.B. McPherson. So Ed had come to uh, U of T with the intention of studying political science, uh, and, he'd, and he'd switched to philosophy. This was during his BA. Uh, his MA was on, which I still haven't been able to find, I'm hoping to one day, was on the uh, 19th century British legal theorist, John Austin. Uh, but then for his PhD, he, he switched again from philosophy to political economy uh, because he really wanted to study with C.B. McPherson, who was, you know, really coming into his own at this time. In 1962, he published, I think it's fair to say, his most famous and influential book, The Political Theory of Possessive Individualism. And McPherson, uh, you know, in that book and, and in his other writings, his project really was to, uh, I mean, he was, he was kind of a liberal Marxist, which I know to many listening might sound like a bit of a contradiction in terms. So let me explain uh, what, I, what I mean. 
Um, McPherson was somebody who, you know, in his most famous book, looked back at the uh, liberal tradition that began with uh, people like uh, Thomas Hobbes and, and John Locke, um, and he critiqued it uh, pretty ruthlessly. He said, you know, this conception of, of uh, you know, human freedom that rests on kind of uh, contracts between, you know, I individuals and has this very atomistic kind of conception of, you know, uh, who people are and is quite uh, hostile to various kinds of uh, social cooperation. Uh, McPherson thought that was uh, that was all wrong, uh, this kind of classical liberal theory. But he also recognized that there are parts of the liberal tradition, um, which, you know, I guess kind of come in after or begin to come in after uh, Hobbes and Locke um, that really do, you know, really are much more egalitarian. And he didn't want to dispense with those. And if people want to understand, I guess, succinctly what Ed Broadbent was all about, the political theory of cooperative individualism is a pretty good succinct description. So you see this idea run through basically everything Ed did after. He saw socialism or social democracy as being fundamentally distinct from liberalism, as qualitatively different. So not like it was not a difference of degree for him. It was a different of fundamental difference of fundamental commitment. But he didn't want to negate, um, you know, the certain aspects of the liberal tradition. Uh, for him, you know, the liberal tradition uh, gives us these uh, civil and political freedoms, which you know, as he uh, like to point out, uh, were often things that, uh, you know, freedom of association, freedom of speech, things like that, uh, that, you know, socialists and social democrats often defended uh, better than uh, liberals themselves, um, you know, which the, the War Measures Act vote that took place in, uh, you know, 1970, I guess it was, uh, during the October crisis, a, a good a good real world example of that. But so, you know, we have these civil and political freedoms and uh, they're great, but they're not enough because we need uh, social and economic rights as well. People need to be free from uh, discrimination, uh, but they also uh, need to have an economic foundation where they're not having to struggle for the necessities of life and where they're able to participate uh, fully in uh, you know, the institutions that govern their lives, not just the political institutions, but the economic institutions as well. So I think McPherson would be probably the most formative influence or easily the most formative influence when it came to, uh, if you want, the, the, the ideological uh, and intellectual side of Ed. The, the second influence that's uh, in some ways more interesting just because it's so unlikely was Michael Oakeshaw, um, who Ed met when he studied at the LSE. When he's working on the thesis, McPherson asked him, do you want to Hey, would you want to go live in London and study the study the LSE for a year? And of course, he was like, you know, hell yeah, hell yeah, I want to I want to live in London. Um, and when he was there, he attended Michael Oakeshott's seminar uh, regularly. I, I'm not sure he ever missed a class. Michael Oakeshott will probably be unfamiliar to uh, many people listening. And you know, I would describe him as as kind of a conservative, but I wouldn't really call him right wing in the sense that we now understand it. He was kind of a theorist of the small C conservative. You know, he he thought that people uh, he thought that people have kind of a natural and organic identification with the practices uh, that they find around them, uh, even I think with simple things in day to day life. Now, Oakshot basically scaled uh, an idea like that up to uh, you know how we should think about politics in general. So he wanted a politics of intimations. It was or the pursuit of intimations is the phrase he used. He wanted to avoid ideology entirely. He, he had a famous metaphor where he compared the enterprise of politics to 
you know, you're you, like if you're in government, you're the captain of a ship, um, and your job is just to keep the ship afloat. You've got, uh, you know, there's no harbor for anchorage. There's no chart to guide you. Just keep the ship afloat and on an even keel. So Oakshot uh, understood that, you know. Uh, change happens, but he never wanted change to happen on the basis of ideology because he thought that was artificial. Now, Ed, obviously, as, a, as an ideologically inclined person, did not identify with Oakshot's conservatism, um, but he did admire his pedagogy. And, uh, you know, actually, there's a, a good description of uh, or good characterization of um, the influence that Oakshot had on Ed um, by the historian Alan Whitehorn. I've got it here. From Oakshot, he learned about people's reluctance to accept change, the fact that it takes time to persuade them to move to a new political position, and the need to respect different viewpoints. I think that's a very succinct, uh, you know, summary of uh, Ed Broadbent's kind of intellectual development um, from, you know, his the two most formative influences that he had. Uh, the, I want to pick up on another element that's related to this, which is his internationalism, uh, which... I think we can talk about the decline of, of overt talk of socialism. We could talk about the, the decline of of uh, mainstream arguments on the left for um, shifting the balance of power and redistributing the means of production, so on and so forth. We can even talk about the decline of statism from the left. But one of the things that I think that often gets missed is this the decline of internationalism. Of which Ed, uh, to which Ed seemed deeply, deeply committed. I mean, in a literal sense of being a part of inter socialist international uh, organizations, of, of traveling the world and and fighting for justice and equality, not just here but but abroad. Um, what, what do you think animated this commitment to internationalism? Was was that also a, a product of the time where there was a belief that to the extent that socialism would rise, it would rise everywhere, and these multilateral organizations were there to to to. Um, propel this forward throughout the globe, or or was it uh, a deeper commitment that he held um, because of that political philosophy he described? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a number of different uh, threads here, and I think this is a little it's a little harder to 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 pinpoint sort of a specific origin story for this because I think there were there were a number of there were a number of things at play. Um, I mean, you know, Ed was first elected in 1968, right? So this is the era of, you know, the Vietnam War is going on. There's kind of mass protests against that. And, you know, Ed obviously uh, identified with with uh, with those. You can see that in the liberal ripoff, which doesn't have a chapter on foreign policy. But, uh, you know, it, it is, uh, you know, it's mentioned in a few places. McPherson, honestly, I mean, this is an, this occurred to me quite recently, but uh, McPherson uh, did a Massey lecture in the 1960s called The Real World of Democracy. I see you uh, effusively nodding your head. It's there. an so extraordinary you... little book of you. <laughs> I, I've got it's over one of my shoulders here. It, it, I remember you, you, you discussed reading Ed's book and having one of those mind blown moments in 2010. Uh, I read that Massey lecture, which is available as a book from Anansi Press. And had a similar moment because it was just the best distillation of, of capitalism versus socialism and the internationalism bound up with that that I had read. And it's very accessible too. Absolutely, and and people can listen to it uh, at the CBC uh, as well. You can listen to McPherson uh, giving it the original broadcast, which is uh, which is a lot of fun. Something I did many times in uh, you know my undergraduate days. But what one of the ideas that that book is advancing, and and you've uh, alluded to it already. Um, is there was, you know, McPherson wanted to recognize a kind of uh, a pluralism about 
uh, how different societies, whether it was the Western liberal democracies, whether it was the recently decolonized uh, or, or societies sort of uh, in the process of decolonization and particularly in you know Africa and Asia, um, or whether it was the, the communist societies, uh, McPherson wanted to recognize a certain pluralism um, of how people approach uh, you know questions of freedom, uh, democracy, and equality. Um, and I think you can see almost a fusion of, of that idea from McPherson and Oakeshott's kind of, you got to deal with the world as you find it uh, in the way that Ed himself approached these questions. Um, Ed wrote a report and one of the many incredible uh, discoveries uh, made during the work on the book. Ed wrote a report after a visit to Cuba um, in uh, the early 1970s, a report I think for the NDP national executive. In that, in that you can see him praising many aspects of the Cuban Revolution, um, the gains of the Cuban Revolution, uh, but also having certain concerns about uh, where, where certain threads might be heading. So there is, you know, a, a universalist idea that he, of, of human rights uh, and of, of justice and equality that, you know, he always kind of uh, ultimately uh, deferred to. But, you know, he was always willing to take uh, in the domestic sphere, you know, be generous to interlocutors that he uh, you know, didn't necessarily agree with, or in some cases, who came from radically different ideological perspectives. And I think that's the attitude he had on the international stage uh, as well. Uh, and when it came to uh, particularly Latin America, where the Socialist International, uh, when he was vice president, um, working alongside uh, the former West German Chancellor, Willy Brandt, um, they did a lot of work in, in Latin America in particular during the 1980s, when the Reagan administration was, of course, pursuing uh, you know, brutal and repressive policies in places like uh, El Salvador and, and Nicaragua. Um, and Ed felt it was his role, and you, know, you can read op-eds from him in the Globe and Mail in the mid-1980s, where he's just, you know, raking the Reagan administration over the coals, you know? So I see his internationalism as, as an extension of, uh, you know, socialist universalism, um, the idea that political, social, and economic rights um, you know, the, the, they, they should be rights. And if, and by definition, if something is a right, it belongs to everybody, regardless mm -hmm. of their area code or what side of a border they happen to reside on. Uh, but then also because Ed was a, a pluralist fundamentally in how he actually approached the practice of politics, I think when he went to other countries, he wanted to he wanted to present his own point of view, um, but he also wanted to uh, he also wanted to learn. So. That's very much how he approached the world as a pluralist who nevertheless had a, a you know, a very, a very committed, uh, you know, political and ideological uh, project. Very exactly the same as he approached, uh, you know, the domestic sphere in Canada. In, in the closing bits, I want to touch on two things. Uh, first, I'm, I'm curious which of Ed's uh, commitments or accomplishments stand out to you as as the most significant, that those that will will stand the test of time. Uh, either during his time in office or after, uh, because, and, and I'll just float an idea here, I, speaking with people about him, I got the sense that one of his enduring accomplishments would be the relationships he built and the people he inspired, um, I including after his time in office, because I hear all these people, How young people come up and, and we, we talk about Ed Broadband, they say, well, you know, he's shaped my politics, he's animated me, he's made me smarter, he's maybe, he's encouraged me to do this, that, or the other. Which seems to me, and I, I wrote about this for the Taiyi, uh, that he had created a generation of of lefties in his mold, which seems to be an enduring legacy. I, I'm curious if that if that resonates with you, and if there are other things that stand out. 
Well, on a personal level, it resonates with me very strongly because, you know, Ed's uh, Ed's career and his, his writing meant a great deal to me before I ever even, you know, I knew him before I met him. So I do think that's an important part of his legacy. Um, I mean, and, you know, there's a, you know, beyond what that personally means to people like me, there's, you know, there's a, just a, a deep, a deep and rich intellectual legacy in, in uh, you know, the, the things he wrote about industrial democracy and, you know, in those ideas, which I think we do well to, uh, you know, consider again. But I mean, there are also, you know, just concretely important, uh, you know, legislative accomplishments if you want. And I mean, I think in terms of, uh, you know, overall impact on the world affecting change, uh, Ed's role and the, uh, you know, very uh, difficult and intricate and tumultuous constitutional negotiations of the early 1980s. I mean, there he had a really pivotal role in uh, constructing, uh, you know, the basic architecture of our of our country. Um, you know, there are a number of stories about this in the book. There's a whole chapter on it um, called The Great Patriation Debate. Um, there's one uh, particular episode that uh, I feel is underexplored, um, but is brought up in the book. I'm actually, I've str I struggled to find um, as much detail about it as, as I would like, but there was an effort by some liberal and some conservative MPs to actually put property rights to codify them in the Constitution. Um, and the NDP was obviously against this. The MPs, uh, Sven Robinson and Ian Waddell, um, seemed to have quite aggressively filibustered whatever the motion was or something like that. And of course, Ed uh, was uh, was strongly against it as well. But uh, when it, uh, Section 35, which is the charter recognizing aboriginal rights, which is how it was referred to, I mean, that was re that that's really fundamental. And it's, you know, been very influential in, uh, you know, subsequent court cases. I'm not a legal scholar, so I can't. So I'm not in a position to elaborate uh, on that too much. But but it was absolutely formative. And, uh, you know, it, it got into the Constitution against Pierre Trudeau's really quite explicit objection to it. You know, Trudeau was a, a very, a, I mean, a very kind of classic uh, 18th century liberal in the sense that he uh, you know, he just didn't believe in any kind of differential rights. And you saw this particularly in his own attitude towards Quebec and the, you know, aspirations of the nationalist movement there. Trudeau really conceived of society as it's a collection of individuals. It's certainly a, a, a rational idea in, in many ways. But the thing is, uh, you know, the rights of, uh, you know, a group like Canada's indigenous peoples, uh, you know, they're, they're anathema to something like that. You know, there's no recognition of, uh, you know, the specificity of, you know, indigenous identity, the, you know, the specificity of, uh, you know, the, the, the historical experience, the unique historical experience uh, of the original inhabitants of the country. So Trudeau is explicitly against uh, Section 35 and anything like it. But, uh, you know, Ed uh, would ultimately praise him for the fact that he recognized he needed to accommodate it in order to get his constitutional uh, package passed. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, despite the many difficult debates they had and, and really profound disagreements, like a mutual respect um, that, that came through in, in, in episodes like that. But yes, in terms of Ed's uh, kind of legislative legacy, there's other things I could name. Uh, but concretely, it's, it's kind of hard to think of anything uh, that's been as formative or had as much direct impact as uh, Section 35. And, and in closing, I guess, corollary to that question, uh, are there lessons from, from Ed's life and times and accomplishments for the contemporary left? I yeah. mean, what stands out as as uh, the, the, the major uh, commitments 
causes, approaches that he adopted that the left ought to take seriously today? I'd imagine there's a few, but what, what stands out? Yeah, sorry, I laughed as you were putting the question to me because it's, you know, it's like in closing, but that's all that's for also very much like a how much time you got kind of <laughs> kind of question. Um, I mean, I'd say I'd say a few things and I'll try to be I'll try to be concise. Yeah, just uh, the top, I mean, I, we could have a whole discussion just on that. But I mean, I wonder if any really stand out as as the core uh, animating concerns. Well, I guess I'd really say uh, two things here. And yeah, I'll try to be uh, concise. I think one of them concerns political practice. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a, a major part of Ed's legacy for me is we don't have to run away from ideology. We don't have to check our socialism at the door. We have to think seriously about how we communicate, um, you know, a transformative political project, uh, because most people, as, as Ed would put it, you know, don't have time to think about abstract moral and intellectual questions. They're thinking about you know, the, the cost of living, and particularly right now, they're thinking about whether they're ever going to be able to afford a home. They're thinking about uh, they're thinking about uh, grocery prices, all the rest of it. They're thinking about the things that everyone thinks about when they're going about their day-to-day -day lives. So that would be one thing. The second thing, though, um, and I mean, this is related, um, is just, uh, you know, is more explicitly ideological. Um, I think Ed Broadbent uh, really was uh, deeply committed to the idea of economic uh, democracy. That was that was implied in the phrase social democracy. To have a meaningfully uh, democratic society for Ed uh, meant having a society in which you know people don't just go vote every few years. Uh, maybe they vote in their workplace. Maybe when they're bargaining or on the picket line, um, what's at stake uh, in those? Uh, negotiations, if you want, it's not just wages and working conditions. It's the rights that um, ordinary people are going to have to shape their workplace and even perhaps to run, uh, you know, the the enterprise in which they're employed. As we kind of set off the top or near the beginning of the discussion, um, you know, social democracy for many people has come to be associated uh, with, you know, just the welfare state, with expanded social programs and things like that, uh, you know, with fighting discrimination in various forms. All of that is very important and we absolutely need it. But we also need to advance an alternative vision of how the economy should run and whose interests it should run and what the role of ordinary people is going to be uh, within all that. I think that was Ed Broadbent's task and I think it's got to be ours as well. Uh, that's a fantastic note on which, and even though we could have a very, very long conversation about this, uh, for now we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's great to talk. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure entirely. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.